Our time in the text this morning will be from 1 Peter as we continue along. And Pastor Dan will be leading us from verse 18 through verse 21. So I will read it and then we'll ask uh, the Lord's blessing upon it. And uh, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for your word and the significance um, that it has for us on Lord's Day, that it would be a main feature for our feasting, that we would come here and be reminded yet again of our hope is in you. You are the object of our hope. And uh, as you have displayed your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, so he is the object of our faith for justification and that his blood was spilt on our behalf, precious indeed. Yet we are reminded, even in hearing of it, how we treat it so lightly in our own lives. Help us as we hear Pastor Dan expound upon it, draw our minds and our hearts to it and to repentance for thinking so lightly of it. Help us in this process, grant us the grace that is required to hear your word, to be obedient to what we hear and to see your spirit fulfill it throughout the fruits of our lives. So Lord, we give thanks for Jesus and our time of hearing your word. In your name we pray, amen. So by now we should be familiar with the theme that Peter is weaving together for us in his letter. The elect exiles, these two truths that really come together and describe who we are as the people of God. And I think in today's text, it just continues to sew them closer and closer together. Peter, what he's doing here is he is painting a picture. He's creating for us a description of what it looks like to be elect exiles. To be people who are chosen of God and by his sovereign grace set apart and saved and sanctified. By his sovereign grace persevered to the end for the inheritance he is keeping for us. And we'll review more of that this morning. But to see that election, if you remember how it begins in verse 3 as it went through. By his abundant mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And you see God's sovereignty in calling out these elect, these elect exiles, and it traces it through what the Lord is doing in our lives and how he is working on our behalf. It talks about the message of the prophets, a message that they wished to know more about, but a message that they realized they were delivering not for themselves, but for you and for me, for us. A message that the angels, as they declared the glory of God, as they declared his redemptive promises and redemptive truth, longed to look into. And in other words, they, they wanted to see this work of redemption, all that God was planning and purposing and fulfilling in Christ. 
They wanted to be the aim, the target, the goal of it. That, that is our experience. We'll see it in the text that God's purposes being worked out for us and for our salvation. And we see God's kindness and God's goodness in our election, and it continues on. But we also have seen a couple other things, what it means then to be elect exiles. First is that you will experience a sense of trial and suffering while on this pilgrim journey as sojourners. God promises that. It's not meant to be avoided at all costs because God brings it. And he tells us he brings it as necessary. That is, it is purposeful for us. It lasts for a moment. It is purposeful for us. And it comes in all shapes. It comes in all sizes. And what God is doing in it is refining us. He is taking it and, and he is bringing about our holiness you remember the example of the purifying fire, and as the heat of that fire melts down that gold, up to the surface rises all the, the, the dross, all the impurities. And the same is true that the fire of trial, the fire of suffering, as, it's, as it comes into our life, brings to the surface all of our false hopes and all false securities and, and our idols and the sin that we're sort of clinging on to. And by his grace and that suffering, he uses it to, to skim those things away. And we re need to realize as elect exiles that this suffering is part of God's sanctifying and persevering work. I think Romans 8 sets the context for it. Everyone knows that little verse. All things work together for good. Those that love God, those who are called according to his purpose. It's a nice verse, but it can sound a bit trite, especially if you throw that out to someone who's going through something really difficult, like, oh, it'll all work out for good. And that's Romans 8.28. But if you go four verses further, Romans 8.32 is the ground for that statement. And it says that Jesus Christ has, that God has freely given us Jesus Christ. That is the greatest gift. That is the foundation of everything. He has freely given us Jesus Christ. And with Christ, what else does he give us? All things. So he's given us Christ. With Christ and through Christ, he gives us all things. And then he goes on to describe what those all things are in Romans 8. And you remember what those are? Famine, nakedness, peril, toil, all kinds of hardship. God's given us Christ. With Christ, he gives us all things. He is working all things for our good, and he tells us what that good is, that Christ would be magnified and that we would be changed into the image of the firstborn, that we would grow in holiness like Christ. And he returns to that theme of all things one more time later in Romans 8, I think verse 36 or 37, where he tells us that in all these things, all of these things that he's given us with the Son, in all of them we are more than conquerors. We don't barely sneak through. We don't get back to normal. We don't just, you know, no, he uses them to make us overwhelming conquerors. And that's what Peter says here is that he is giving us these things in order that the inheritance that he is guarding for us, he is also guarding us for that inheritance. Not by protecting us and giving us every comfort, but by the midst of suffering being a gracious God who is purifying us. That's part of the elect exile, the sojourner's journey here on earth. 
And then Pastor Adam, he set it up for us in one of his first introductory sermons and returned to it a couple times. And that is that Peter is, is really taking a swipe, tearing down what we need to hear is these idols of comfort and security and acceptance. That we can so easily be shaped by fear of man and just strive for a life of comfort. Strive for a life of security. Strive for a life of being accepted. And he's telling us that this won't be the case as elect exiles, as sojourners. And then we come to the section of the imperatives that Adam's been on the last couple weeks as he calls us then to be holy. That our lives wouldn't be a, a, a mirror image of culture around us, but that our own culture as a church, as a family, as individuals, would be shaped by Christ, would be, have a different ethic to it. I'll make one caveat. I think you, you know this, but when we talk about being strangers and exiles, we're not saying that you owe nothing to this age in which we live. Pastor Adam, right before we started in Peter, you remember, went through the three realms of God-ordained authority, and the last one that we spoke about was the state. And there is a submission that we have to that authority. There is an allegiance that we have to the country that we're placed in, to the state that we're in, to the city that we're in, to the school that we're in, whatever it might be. There is a sense in which we do have an allegiance and owe something to them and submit to the authorities God has placed in our lives. And we are to contribute to that society, to the culture that we find ourselves in in a meaningful way and do good to our neighbor and to, to seek justice for the, the culture and all of those things. And so that's real and that's true and we talk about that often. But typically the danger isn't for Christians that we, we are you know, not involved enough in our culture. Typically the danger is, is that we have given ourselves to it and we mimic it and we mirror it and we forget that we belong to God. That our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance, is not to country, is not to state. That if you were crying tears of joy that about Biden's inauguration or weeping tears of sorrow that Trump is gone, you've got some misplaced emotion. Our hope, our surety, our allegiance, our obedience is to the Lord. If we're going to find acceptance, if we're going to find genuine, true meaning and full fulfillment in life, and you're looking right here for it, you will not find it. It belongs in the Lord. And so as we come to the end of that text, Adam preached for us at the end of verse 17, it says, conduct yourselves with, with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And I think Peter, knowing that he's speaking to people who are weak like himself, whose faith is weak, anticipates our misunderstanding of what it means to conduct ourselves in fear, as if maybe then all of a sudden we will not be assured of the sovereign goodness of God, of his persevering promises to us, or perhaps we move into the idea of merit and, and wondering if we are worthy of the Lord's grace. And so as soon as he can, says conduct him, ourselves in fear, he moves our view 
fully back onto the cross of Christ. And that's what we'll look at this morning, is moving our view back onto the cross of Christ. But we need to realize that the, the, the cross of Christ, it's not either fear or cling to the cross of Christ, but it is in the shadow of the cross that godly fear really grows and is really understood. We know this. It's not fear that we stand in terror of a mean God who wants to do something mean to us. As Adam highlighted last week, it is a judgment by our Father. It is fear before the Heavenly Father who knows us and cares for us and pities us and is gracious to us. And as we'll see, gave us Jesus Christ. Calvin describes the fear this way. The fear that is mentioned stands opposed to heedless security such as is wont to creep in when there is hope of deceiving with impunity. Of heedless security. That is that the fear should be awe, it should be reverence, and it should be some fear as we think about it, as looking at the gifts from God, primarily Jesus Christ, and then all the gifts that he has given with us, and just deciding, I don't want that. I'll live a different way. I want the outcome of that, but I don't want it to have a say on my life. As R.C. Sproul, I've heard him say a couple times in sermons, the hardest thing in the Christian life is to remember who you belong to. Because every day we wake up thinking we belong to ourselves or we feel the pressure of culture around us and we want to belong to that and find the acceptance and find security and have that set the priorities. Have that set the ethic, the culture of our lives and our home. But God gets to do that. We belong to him. We belong to his kingdom, to his country. We are sojourners now. And until we can sew those things together of being bought and belonging to God, living now productively, but as people whose allegiance belongs to the Lord. So Peter is going to take us to the cross. <clears throat> I worked for a couple years as the church was growing and we needed to have a little bit of outside income. I worked at a jewelry store where Bert is the gemologist um, at and so I was the shipping and receiving, which means if there's 30 employees, I was 30th on the totem pole. Um, so I, I did shipping and receiving, and then just like kind of whatever everyone else didn't want to do. And so weirdly, one of my main jobs was like changing light bulbs. The jewelry store has a million light bulbs in it, and so they all need to be lit. And so every morning, as the store was getting set up, I had two things. I had to make sure the jewelry pads were out, and that means... You know, you have your, your jewelry case. When they want to take a ring out and show it to a customer, they put it on the pad. And then I need to make sure all the lights were lit. And one of the most important spots was the, the diamonds, where the engagement rings are, all the big stones, was on that section. And when I put the jewelry pads there, they always wanted the black velvet-covered pads. And you had to make sure every light bulb, you know, all the little things they have there to trick you how sparkly the diamonds are. You had to make sure they were all in there just right. I'm giving away Bert's secrets here. Um, and so when you do that, that way when, you know, the couple comes in and they're all excited, you know, they can pull out that big diamond. They 
comes on its little stand. They stick it on this black case underneath the light, and you see the sales lady, salesman there, kind of slowly just turning that, and you see the diamond just sparkling, every facet of it. <clears throat> Peter does that with the gospel here, where it's, he's rotating just this diamond of the gospel. And you see this facet, and then another facet flashes, then another, then another, then another. And he just keeps stacking beautiful truth upon beautiful truth upon beautiful truth. That when he's calling us to walk in fear, he's doing it in light of just rotating this diamond of the gospel. And so let's just look at a couple facets of that this morning. Just three things I want to draw from the text. First is that we have been redeemed from futility. We have been redeemed from futility. You see that there in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The idea there of ransom, it's the idea of redeemed, the ransom to, to have a debt paid off, to have, have someone pay a debt that you could not afford. You've probably heard that definition before. Often in the context, in the, that New Testament era, in the context of slavery, of someone paying off a debt that sets that slave free. And, and so they, they're paying off an indebtedness that that person himself cannot pay. And we have that imagery of that is what the Lord is doing for us. That is what God in Christ is doing for us, is paying a debt that we cannot pay. He is setting us free. He is paying the cost to set us free. And what is he setting us free from? It says, but the futile ways inherited from our fathers. Now, as you read, there's, there's probably a, a, a variety of maybe specific things for Peter when he thinks of a, what is a futile way. If it's for the Gentile part of the crowd that's listening, it's probably paganism and, and the futile ways that they went after religion for the Jewish people. Probably the futile ways of, of hanging on to a tradition that had forgotten God and yet walked by sort of pharisaical commands. But I think just generally, as he speaks, it's safe to assume that when he's talking about futile ways that belong to man, just the, the trying to find freedom, trying to find acceptance, trying to find meaning in life apart from God. A natural order of things that does not acknowledge God. Where so many people live their lives, where unfortunately even a lot of Christians can spend a lot of their time looking and searching for meaning and acceptance and joy in the midst of futility. And he's saying God has, has bought you out. He has saved you from this futility, this meaninglessness. I have this tendency in my own heart and my own life. Anna, if she were here, would testify to it. Where just every so often I get stir-crazy about just life in general. And I think, man, there's something new to try or something, maybe a new hobby, maybe a new, you know, just something that feels like I'm just spinning my wheels in life a little bit right now. And, and you know, if I could, I don't know buy a new mountain bike, mountain bike tomorrow, or take up golf, or I don't know, whatever it might be. And, and you, you look at life, and you, 
and you start trying to think, how can I have more of a sense of, of purpose? How can I have more of a sense of meaning, of fulfillment, of, of whatever it might be? And those times kind of maybe you face them, they come, come and go. And it often happens is when we start looking at life and finding our meaning and our purpose and our joy and our acceptance, whatever it is, outside of kingdom principles, outside of Christ as our king and living for him. And you start comparing yourself with somebody else and you start uh, looking at your financial situation in a different way and you start whatever it might be and then you get caught in this futility of life and you just kind of get in this bad way of, of feeling bad for yourself. And we were told that we've been ransomed from that futility, from that helplessness and hopelessness. And so he tells us then, remember, conduct yourself in fear as elect exiles. Fear of what? Fear of, of living life as if you aren't ransomed. As if your meaning and purpose is going to be found in futility and not in Christ's promises. Secondly, we've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. We've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. Nothing cheap like silver and gold. But something invaluable like the blood of Christ. You see the, the way he phrases it. Not perishable like silver and gold, which would make us assume the imperishable, eternal, infinitely valuable blood of Christ. We've already seen our inheritance is that, right? It's unfading, it's undefiled, it's kept by God's grace because the blood of Christ that secured it for us is unfading and undefiled and eternal. So it's the blood of Christ offered for us. Peter, it's, it's interesting, if you look in Acts of the life of Peter, he, he returns to this theme often of silver and gold and its worthlessness compared to Christ and his blood and his name. If you remember early in Acts, I think it's Peter and John that are going to the temple, and the lame man is there on the steps, and he's asking for a little bit of, of coin or something to help him out. And Peter tells him, silver and gold, I don't have any, but I do have something better to offer you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. The name of Christ, more valuable than silver and gold. I'm not going to sit on this idea of wealth for a long time, but I do think it is instructive that often wealth is the thing that we look for security and acceptance and joy in, and it doesn't deliver it because it's worthless in comparison to the blood of Christ. Then it continues on, both the precious blood of Christ, verse 19, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, I mean, for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years now, this theme of sacrifice and the Lamb of God has been building through the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus Christ as a Lamb whose life would be taken and its blood would be shed in order to cover the sins of the people. It is a lamb that had to be perfect, without blemish, without spot. Then it was considered to be a worthy sacrifice. Peter probably especially referring to the Passover lamb. And so this lamb was offered as a worthy sacrifice. And it was done feast after feast after feast, year after year after year, occasion after occasion, again and again and again and again and again. 
then 400 years of silence, and then you see John the Baptist and his ministry calling people to repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. As he stands, he's baptizing people in the river, and here comes Jesus, and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The perfect Lamb of God. When you consider that we have been ransomed with the blood of Christ, there should be a couple things. First, the cost of our redemption should point out to us just how serious our sin is. That to look at God and to live for ourselves and to not take his commandments seriously and to not pursue a life of holiness by his grace and to not live in some sense of fear that this loving, gracious God owns me. Calvin would say to just have heedless assurance. That's not what Peter tells us. He, he tells us in verse 13 at the beginning of, of these imperatives, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. There's a seriousness to our sin. We shouldn't look at it lightly. We shouldn't look at the pursuit of holiness with a shrug of the shoulders. Because God took it seriously enough that he sent his son in human form, God himself, to die for our sin. Rarely a week goes by that we don't sing a song. Some One of our songs has a, a lyric about the blood of Christ. We, we preach about the gospel always from the pulpit. We come every month and, and we take the, the table and we're reminded that the Lord wants us to have the blood of Christ before us. To, to take it there in, in the communion cup. To be constantly reminded because we have to cling to the cross. And that is what produces in us hope and joy and assurance. And it is the place that cultivates godly fear. Of looking at that blood. Of, of receiving it by faith. And then to trample it underfoot by living in such a way that cares nothing for the cost that cares nothing for the claim that it makes on our lives. He's telling you as elect exiles, your lives are set up differently than culture around us. Christ has a claim on you, and the cross of Christ is the center, the heart of it. One more quote from Calvin I think is helpful in this. He says, There is nothing that should stimulate us to the practice of holiness as the memory of the price of our redemption. To pay no heed to the direction of the Father not only sees our salvation as without worth, but considers the blood of Christ to be of little worth. And we know how dreadfully sacrilegious it is to regard as common the blood of the Son of God. Clinging to the cross for our hope also is a place that helps us in our fight against sin, in our pursuit of holiness, in living according to the Lord's word. Finally, we have been ransomed according to God's plan for us. We have been ransomed according to God's plan for us. You can spend a lot of time on each of these little phrases, but again, it's just Peter taking that diamond of the truth of the cross and turning it, turning it, turning it, turning it. Verse 18, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that, that God the Father and God the Son, in relation, in unity, foreknew and loved you that God loved you in Christ that that Jesus Christ as Ephesians would say that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world that the eternal purpose and the eternal plan had yes a global effect a church-wide effect but you can rightfully say had in the end of this eternal plan you That, that he foreknew you and the plan of God through Christ that he would come. And then it says, in these last times, he has been made manifest. That's John 1. That's Christmas. That, that, that Christ has come. In the era of church history, these last times are from Christ's life, death, resurrection, until he comes again. This is what the prophets longed to know and a message that was for us. This is what the text here says that the, the preachers, the evangelists, proclaim today. As Jesus Christ come, that he came, he made himself known. He took on human flesh. Why? For your sake, for my sake. That who through him our believers in God, that through Christ we believe in God. That is, all that was necessary for us to be with God is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, to be invited into the holy place, the holy of holies. The curtain torn in two was a work of Jesus Christ. For us to know holiness and to be able to see it and to be in awe of it, for us to have any desire for it, means that Christ had to walk through it first. And through the work of Christ, we believe in God. He was raised from the dead to eternal glory. It probably skips his, his death because he already covered that in the blood of the Lamb. But he was raised from the dead to eternal glory. We looked at that earlier in 1 Peter, that the surety of our hope, the reason that we were caused to be born again to a living hope through him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It, it is our hope and it's our surety. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Our resurrection hope is a reality because we see first the first fruits of Christ's resurrection. And he has gone to glory so that then we share in that glory. Again, after he talks about the purifying fire earlier in 1 Peter, it talks about it for our glory. That is that we would reflect the glory of God and this pure gold that he is producing in us. And we share in that glory. And Jesus Christ in glory now interceding on our behalf. And then finally he says that your faith and your hope are in God. Look how he begins, the, verse 13, he begins this section. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. That is where your hope lives. 
That is what produces holiness, is this gratitude and this sure hope that's not this sort of, you know, real subjective hope and, and something that isn't guaranteed to us at all. And it's just going to bring either nostalgia or disappointment. But it's a sure hope in the living God. As elect exiles... He's called us again and again to hope in God. That, that hope has an effect on the way you live right now, on who you fear, on who you seek acceptance from, on where your allegiance really lies, on how you prioritize the decisions that you make and the way you spend your time. It's because your hope is in God. It's not in the futility of this earth. Your meaning, your acceptance is located fully in our King and in our God. And when he calls us to cling to the cross, our hearts should rejoice. We should see the cross. We should rest in it. We should rejoice in it. But with it should come an awe and a fear and a reverence that we have been purchased by the Lord. We belong to him. And we dare not trample underfoot the blood of Christ by living in such a way that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for its truth, for its claim upon our heart and our lives. Lord, might you take what was delivered. Lord, the truth of it might the Spirit take and plant upon the hearts of the hearer. I'll give you just a moment to think through the sermon, to meditate privately and thoughtfully on it. And in just a minute, we will respond.